If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. I didn't get a chance to look it up in the Pew Bible, but we're going to look at the last few verses. Jonathan's going to read it for me, if you will. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for, for God's holy word. 18 through what verse? The end. The end. Yeah. Revelations 2, 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith, and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give you to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Awesome. Thank you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Be with us this morning as we, as we gather to open up your word. And as we open your word, may you open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears and our mouths and our hands and our feet that we would, we would receive your word, be transformed by it, and go in obedience to Christ. What a challenging text we have here, but what we see here is Christ. May we not miss Christ. May we, with the believers in Thyatira, respond with repentance and faith. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. I don't. I don't know about about you, but when I was growing up, my my hometown was never in the news. Uh, we got Lexington, Louisville, and Cincinnati news, and we were never mentioned at all. I mean, it's not like city folk are going to come down and report on you know the uh, turnover tractor on six oh seven. It's not like if, if a cattle got loose in grass and finds its way to the Browns' bottom, that's going to make it as a headlining, top-of-the-news sort of story. So when we, we would tune in to local news, we, we knew we weren't going to be mentioned. We weren't important to them. It didn't matter what we accomplished in sports or, or what some goofy thing some local politician did. No one seemed to care. However, once, maybe twice uh, a year, we would be in the news. And we would see the city folk come in with their cameras and fancy vans and everyone would notice. And, and we all knew why they came, because if they're coming down, then whatever it is that they're going to report on is really newsworthy. It was usually a murderer. Sometimes it wasn't that, but it's usually a, a murder. Uh, every year or two, you know, you, you get your annual murders because someone says something at the local um, 
wedding or family reunion, whatever you want to call it. And, and uh, uh, there was a murder to happen. And, and, and on the news story, two things would, 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 would happen. First is the local sheriff would be interviewed. Well, that makes sense. If it's a murder, you're going to interview the sheriff, and he's, he's going to tell you where the uh, investigation stands, all, all that sort of stuff. The other thing that would happen is they'd find someone else to investigate. You can't, or, or to interview. You can't just interview the sheriff and be done. You got you, you to gotta get a sense of how the local people are responding, those savages from Moyne County. And so, and so what they would do is they would find someone related to the news story, in this case for, for our purpose, a, a murder. It may happen like three times growing up. And, and they would find a, a relative of the deceased or, or someone who was a neighbor or something like that. But it seemed like every time they would choose the same sort of person. You know what sort of person I'm talking about. <laughs> He'd be on his front porch, rocking in the chair that has been handed down from generation to generation since his family first bought the land and he'd be missing most of his teeth beard all the way down to his oversized belly and you can smell the alcohol through the camera and in the front because they would get a wide shot right they're about to interview uh, 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 Carl here and and or uh, Jedediah whatever his name might be and and you would see on one end of his front yard a hot tub a hot tub he got dumpster diving and it was being held together by, by uh, duct tape. It was a gift to his, to his lady, his third wife. And, then, and then, then over here in his front yard would be the water heater, of course. And, and then on the roof, you would see two tires holding the roof down in case tornadoes come, right? Right? And, and they'd interview this guy, and he would talk the way you think he talks, and he would say the things you, 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 you've already got in your head, he would say. And we would sigh. This is what people think of us. Yet, regardless, we, we knew that if we in Oynton, if we in Oln County were in the news, it must be because it was newsworthy. So, too, if you were to take all the top ten cities of Asia Minor, where, where these letters were being sent out to, and you were to say these are the top ten cities of this area of Rome, who would not be in that list was Thyatira. Therefore, the fact that we find this little town in a series of letters of larger cities, cities like Ephesus and Philadelphia, not that Philadelphia, uh, Sardis and Laodicea and Pergamum, the fact that we find Thyatira means that what is happening here from the perspective of heaven upon the throne of Christ must be of great importance. It must be of great importance and something we must look into. We want to start in, I believe, the first two verses looking at the eyes. You'll, you'll notice here that this letter starts the way all the letters, these seven letters start. You begin with, uh, to the messenger, your translation may say angel. The, the, the English word angel is a transliteration of the Greek word angelos, meaning messenger, uh, uh, announcer, angel, right? So an angel is just a messenger. And so these are either 
uh, to an actual angel, right? And that sounds some theological question. Or it's to a, a local messenger, maybe the pastor or something. But it'll say to the messenger of the church of, in this case, Thyatira. And then we get a picture of Christ in all of his, his glory, right? And it's a unique picture of Christ for each unique church. And you'll see here he's described as having eyes, a flame of fire, and feet of bronze, right? Now, the eyes language is taken, as do all the seven churches, are taken from chapter 1. So all these images of Christ are taken from, from chapter 1. So you'll see in chapter 1, verse 14, we see this, this image. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, right? And, and what an what a awesome image that is. Now, if you keep reading in Revelation, you'll find the same imagery showing up again. We'll actually look at it, Lord willing, this evening in Revelation 19. Verse 12 says, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diatoms. This is when Jesus shows up and lays a smackdown once and for all. Now, I don't know if there's any special meaning to this, okay? So this is me sort of thinking about the text, and there's probably no special meaning to it, but this is a nice little footnote for you. You, you, you can put it in your notes and figure it out on your own. But I find it striking that when we see Jesus in his eyes, they almost always have fire in them, whatever that means, right? Have fire in them. Yet when we see believers and their eyes are being described, it's always described as having water in them. But not just water, but the removal of water. And so on two occasions in Revelation, you do your own word study, it describes Christ taking away the tears from their eyes. I don't know what to do with that. It was just something I noticed, so it's free, and I will not charge you for that. Uh, but there is some debate as to, to, to what the eyes of fire really mean, right? And, and I think I've got an idea. When I was growing up, uh, my parents sang in the choir. They still sing in the choir, but I'm not as afraid of them now as I was then, right? I can outrun them. And, and, but growing up, uh, they would sing in the choir. And the first church we attended until I was about, uh, I think, first grade, uh, when we went, went, went to the church that, that, that really formed me. But the first church, it was, it was like this. The choir was right, right behind the pulpit. The other church, it was to the side. And we had to sit, my, my brother and sister and I, where mom and dad could see us. And if we acted up, you know what mom and dad would do to us, particularly my mother? They would look at us with daggers in their eyes. Now, you know what I mean when I say daggers in the eyes, right? It doesn't mean they are, they, they are armed with daggers shooting out of their eyes, right? That, that's, 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 not, that's not what I mean at all. It means that the look they give us implies we will return home from church with tears, right? And, and it's going to hurt, right? Come to church this morning is going to cause us a lot of pain, right? And if mom and dad ever had to come out of the choir to deal with us, we were going to get pain during church, right? Uh, I, some, some young people are like, you got spanked during church? Yeah, we did. And they brought us back into the church while we were still crying, so, yeah, so oh, it's, getting, it's getting hot up in here. Speaking of Boyne County, that was my dad on the news they were interviewing, right? <laughs> Boy, let me tell you what. We, oh, no, that, that wasn't him at all. But in the Bible, fire, especially in Revelation, implies that of 
purity and holiness and also of judgment. It's not an accident that fire comes down throughout the Bible in in the context of condemnation. So too we have a church here where Christ is, is, his feet are, are burnished bronze and his eyes are flames of fire and it is towards a church that he threatens with condemnation. He is pure and he looks at them and, and, and he says, you could do better than this. And if you don't do better than this, judgment will come. But before we get to that judgment, we, we got to look at the good news, right? And there is good news here. You see it there in verse 19. He, he praises them for their works, their love, their faith, their service, and their patient endurance. What is striking about this is this is the opposite of the first church, Ephesus. Remember, the Ephesian church had good theology. They just weren't living out their faith. Remember, they had a cold love. They had left behind their first love. And so they were in different church. Right? They, they loved long Bible studies, but they were unwilling to sit next to a stranger. They're unwilling to serve and, 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 to, and to show the joy that is Christ. This church, on the other hand, they were good at charity. They were good at service. They were good at, at, at mercy. But they were terrible in, in their faith. They were slowly becoming like the world, thus deluding the good works that they were doing. So we go from the eyes of verses uh, 18 and 19 to the exhortation of verses 22, uh, 23. And what is striking is that after those, the, some, some, some encouragement, Jesus gets down the brass tack, starting verse 20. I have this thing against you, right? Don't you wish our relationships were more like that? You can't do that in a marriage, can you? Well, men, you can't do that in a marriage, can you, right? I'll just stop that there. Um, uh, Here's what I have against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, he's immediately comparing them to Jezebel. I trust you're familiar with the story. We looked at the story of Elijah a, a few years ago. Elijah was, or Jezebel is Elijah's opposite, if you will. She's the villain. Uh, and, and he's the hero, to, to simplify it. Um, and, and think of it this way. If today you compare someone to Hitler, which you should probably avoid doing that as a general rule, especially online, okay? Um, but if you were to compare someone to Hitler, you're doing so saying, this is the worst person I can think of over the last 100 years. You don't want to be compared to Hitler. So too, in the biblical world, if you're compared to Jezebel, you're being compared to one of the worst people in the world. And so he's saying that you, you've been seduced by, you have tolerated, you've welcomed into your own congregation that of Jezebel. And so, so verse 20 is very clear. You have tolerated her. Now, this is different, yes, from embracing or being forced upon that of Jezebel. Yet it implies a personal flirtation with her and this flirtation jesus is saying is is it is so seductive beware it'll soon lead to a marriage you are flirting with jezebel after all a little leaven paul will say leaven's an entire lump so like with pergamum thyatira is being seduced jezebel the spiritual harlot is whispering in their ears and the weakness of the church is not the threat of governors like with some of the others or presidents or Congress or kings. It was the seduction of Jezebel. 
She is seducing them into the same temptations that Thyatira had. Isn't that striking? The same temptation that one church has in this fallen culture is the same temptation this other church has in this fallen culture. What are they? Well, they're given to us there in verse 20, 21, isn't it? Notice the list here. Here it is sexual immorality and idolatry. Go back to the church of Pergamum we saw last week. What was the order? It was the opposite. Immorality and, uh, or, or idolatry and then immorality. It's not an accident that we are put together, these two churches, and saying it's the same temptations. It's the same forked tongue of the serpent, later identified as the great dragon. In fact, it's it's possible, we'll we'll talk more about it tonight, chapter 19, that this Jezebel could be related to the woman who rides on the beast uh, from chapter 17. You can do your own study of that, and it's a matter of debate. So notice here, Jesus is saying that unlimited tolerance is not a good thing. It is not appropriate for the church to tolerate heresy and sin. I know that, at least for a while, tolerance was the buzzword of America. And it's funny how, how we don't talk about tolerance like we used to, but, but toleration eventually becomes celebration. And there are things that the church and Christianity cannot and should not tolerate. And the motivation behind tolerating this Jezebel is primarily cultural and economical. You see, the way Thyatira is set up is it's run by what are called guilds. Modern lingo would be unions, right? And and so no matter what job you had there, if you were laying bricks or you were working in the public school system, they didn't have that, but let's just pretend, or or you were a farmer or whatever job you had, you would join the, the farmer's guild or the union or the baker's union or whatever it might be. And part of that union would would be that you would celebrate and participate in the worship of Apollo, one of the main leading gods here. And you would make sacrifice. You didn't have to believe in any of it. You would just participate in it. Now, part of participating in worship with, of, of Apollo was the immorality that Jesus describes here. It would involve temple harlots, for example, and you would be encouraged and expected to participate in that. And along come the Christians, and they're saying, you know what? I love my job. I support my union, and I'm grateful for the opportunities it gives me, but I cannot engage in this worship and in these activities. And, and you know what's going to happen, right? Your coworkers and, and buddies in are like, oh, come on, man. Everyone's doing it. Everyone's involved. And don't you understand, your livelihood depends on this. This is our one weekend retreat a year. Everyone's okay with it. No one's going to tell your wife. No one is going to say anything. What happens in Thyatira at the Union Brigade stays in Thyatira at the Union. But here comes the Christian saying, no, I don't think I can do that. And in walks Jezebel during Sunday school. Because everyone knows that if we don't participate, I'll lose the union. I'll lose my business. I'll lose my job. And I and my family will suffer. And all of a sudden, Jezebel has an opinion she'd like to share during Bible study. And she'll say, don't don't you guys see Don't you guys see, we're making a big deal out of something and isn't a big deal. This is just the way things work around here. Look, this is the way we've always done them. Look, God loves you 
and has a wonderful plan for your life. Don't you see? The main thing is for us, and what God wants from us, is to just be happy. Besides, whatever sin you think you're committing, Jesus has already satisfied at the cross. You see, sin may abound, to use Pauline language, but grace will abound all the more. It's no big deal. See how easy that is? See how familiar that sounds to us? It's a little compromise just to get through the weekend, just to pay the monthly bills, just to fit in. Before long, you're not just tolerating that woman Jezebel. You're married to her. This is the false teaching, and it is anti-gospel that can woo even the strongest of Christians. You see, the serpent here is whispering. This one little compromise can bypass all the suffering, all the hardship, all of which is unnecessary. It's just one small little thing. And so what what Jesus responds then is that of judgment. Verses 22, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. The language there is actually, I will kill them with death. Here's the language of judgment. This isn't Jesus meek and mild. It's Jesus mean and wild, ain't he? Notice two things about judgment here. First of all, God judges evil because he is good. The irony here is of the sickbed. If Jezebel is a spiritual harlot, I think that's the idea here, then what we'd expect of the harlot is to use a very different bed. But what we find here is Jesus puts her in a sick bed, not a marriage bed, not a private bed, but in a sick bed, a sick bed of judgments. Her judgment serves as a condemnation of her and her works, but also as a warning to those who may continue to flirt with her. She will come in judgment. God warns them that you are trusting in Jezebel rather than trusting in me. Yes, if you follow me, hardship will come. Economic difficulty will come. But believe in me. Be patient and endure with me because I will win in the end. And Jezebel and those like her will be destroyed because God comes to judge because God is good. Not only that, he comes to to, to warn others in his judgment. And this is a constant theme throughout the Bible. Read the book of Exodus. God says that, that my name will be great because I will redeem you from the mighty Egyptians. So too, the, the, the church in Thyatira and the, and the others reading this circular letter will, will see that when God shows up and condemns the, the Romans or, or, the, or Babylon or, or, or these governors or whatever the, the context, how you read Revelation is, we will see as the church a reminder that, that, that God's judgment is good and is a warning to the nations. So, so we, we move from the eyes to, to, to the exhortation. Let us finally look at the encouragement here, starting in, in verse 24. He writes, To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you my, any other burden, only hold fast 
what you have until I come. You see, despite the clear flaws of the church, there are still a remnant within the church who are holding fast to the faith. And Jesus' exhortation to them is pretty straightforward, isn't it? Notice here, he doesn't give them extra burdens. His exhortation is is pretty straightforward. Maintain the faith. You don't need to do more. You need to do the basic things. You need to return to the basic faith. I, I love this about Jesus. What he says is, Basically, fight for the pure gospel, endure with patient endurance, despite any persecution and economic distress, and maintain a pure church. Keep the faith. Proclaim the gospel. Grow in, 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 in the faith. You don't need to do anything else. These are the things they must prioritize. Do not prioritize your own happiness. Don't prioritize your own security. Prioritize the glory of God in your theology and in your life. No other burden Jesus is adding on them. In fact, notice the language, the same language we've seen in all seven letters. Verse 26, the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as an earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Do you see what he called them? Conquerors. If you're reading the New American Standard or other translations, it'll say overcomers. I think we talked about this last, last Sunday evening or, or sometime. It's all starting to run together with Revelation for me. But, but there is a theme throughout the, the book of overcoming or conquering. And so what you have in the, in the letters is the hope of each Christian who, who uh, endure with patience, you shall overcome. You shall conquer in the end with Christ. But the middle of, of, of the book is how the beast comes and... And, and overcomes, the, the dragon comes and conquers. And so, so it looks like here's a little church being persecuted. They're being dominated and they are being oppressed while the beast over here, whether that's Rome or a future Babylon, whatever it is, they are the ones conquering. But then in the end, what we find, Christ, the lamb who was slain, comes and he conquers and he overcomes because the church triumphs by the means of the cross of Christ. And he says it here is that you think you will simply survive if you are seduced and you are in bed with Jezebel. He says, but you have forgotten you are already conquerors. It doesn't matter what happens to you. It doesn't matter what the world may try to do to you. You have conquered. You are conquering. You will conquer in Christ. This is the the hope that he has. After all, the one who's writing this letter has eyes the flame of fire and his feet are burnished bronze. You shall overcome. You shall conquer. That may mean poverty for now. That may mean imprisonment and persecution and even death for now. But don't worry. You are conquerors. You, You were conquerors. You will be conquerors. Notice he promises two things. There's only two letters that I'm aware of uh, here. Pergamum that we saw last week in Thyatira, where Jesus gives a twofold promise. We saw the conquerors, but here's the two things. First of all, Jesus gives them authority. You, you, you see it there in verse 26. The one who conquers keeps my works till the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. Now, later in Revelation, the language here is borrowed again. Notice, they have authority over the nations. He will rule them. That word rule is the word shepherding. 
And then there's a lot of debate here about, about how do we read this because you don't shepherd with an iron fist, right? Or here an iron rod. That doesn't make any sense. But you remember, this isn't narrative. It's not, it's, it, it's not a parable. It's apocalyptic. So when you have apocalyptic imagery, the mixing of metaphors makes sense. We saw this last Sunday night with the, uh, the, the lion-lamb imagery in Revelation 5. You cannot paint a lion-lamb and it make any sense. You can't paint the four living creatures with four faces. One, a lion, one is an eagle, one is an ox, another is a human, right? You, you can't do that. But apocalyptic literature makes complete sense. So I think what we have here is, yes, a mix in a metaphors on purpose. You shepherd, you rule. Both are, are true here because that's what we see with Christ. He will shepherd, he will rule with, with, an, with, with, with an iron Raw. So this is this shows up later. Revelation twelve. She gave birth to the male child. Right. We'll, we'll talk about this a little bit tonight. We're actually going to see a lot of Revelation tonight, Lord willing. And, and so uh, it's probably Israel or the Church or Mary, if you're Catholic, gives birth to the child Messiah. And it says um, he, the child, the male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That is shepherd or rule with a rod of iron. In chapter 19, again, that's the passage we're going to look at tonight, chapter 19. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. We, we saw the mouth proceeding from the sword of Pergamum last week. With which he will strike down the nations, he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will shepherd them with a rod of iron. So what we need to see here is this is a promise of exaltation. Now, what is the temptation Jezebel's given them? Unless you compromise, unless you give in, you're going to be impoverished. You're going to be outcast. You're going to be a no one. You're going to be kicked out. You will be down here. And what's the promise? He says, if you will just maintain the faith, if you will persevere with patience and joy and endurance, what I promise you is exaltation. After all, isn't that the story of Christ? Isn't that what Paul tells us in Philippians 2? That he humbled himself to the point of death, even death upon the cross. But God will lift him up so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Notice, humiliation leads to exaltation. And John, through the mouth of Jesus, is reminding believers, don't worry about the threats of this world. Remember who you are in Christ and the promises he makes you. The hope of exaltation. Not only that, but he gives them not authority and the morning star. Now, this term shows up four times in the Bible. Job uh, first or second Peter, I, I took it out of my notes. And then twice in Revelation here, and then in Revelation 22. John does something a little different with in Revelation. We'll focus our study of it in Revelation. In Revelation 22, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel or messenger uh, to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David. We talked about that from Revelation 5 last week. The bright and morning star. Now, who then is the bright and morning star? Who's Venus, right? You get up in the morning, Venus is the bright and morning star. Who is that according to Revelation? It's Jesus. Right? That's an easy one for Revelation, ain't it? Because Jesus says, I am the bright morning star. Well, that was easy. <laughs> I don't know who the four living creatures are, but that one's easy. Good. Got one out of 100 right on the Revelation quiz. All right? But here he says there that, um, verse 28, I will give him 
the morning star. What? How do you understand that? What do we do with this? What we need to see in both examples is, is, because we get it from the first example, authority. The authority isn't just given to believers. It is the authority of Christ given to believers. You you, you see here? That, that, That what is given to Christ is given to those who endure. Those who are suffering are exalted in giving that which is Christ. So too, those who are suffering are given what? Christ himself. I give him the morning star. I give them Christ. You see, the the issue of this story, this letter is, which do you desire the most? The culture? Christ. Society? Or the morning star? And the decisions you make, the compromises you decide, will answer that question for you. You see, it's easy for rich American evangelicals to say, I love Jesus as long as the economy is going well. I love Jesus as long as my guy is running things. I love Jesus so so long as things seem normal. But the second we realize society is turning against us, what have we done? We've panicked. Because what we desired was culture more than Christ. Choose this day the morning star. For he can be yours if you would have it. After all, what did Christ spare from the culture? A cross? What makes you think somehow you will escape similar fates? If you want Christ... Prepare for a cross. But with Christ comes both exaltation, the authority, and the glorification, the morning star. As Christ is risen from the dead, so shall we. And in light of that glory, Jezebel shouldn't seem so tempting. So we begin with a small town, Exalted and glorified because they chose the king. This takes patient endurance. This requires unyielding faith. Yet while we await the day of exaltation, we must today hold fast to the faith and not so easily be seduced. Which part of this church describes you and describes us? Do we justify disobedience with the forked tongue of the serpents? Well, it's not that big of a deal. Just a, just a little compromise here or there. Or do we hold fast to the faith regardless of the cost? Every Christian in the West wants revival. We certainly need one. But revival will not come, these seven letters show us, without first reformation within the church. Let repentance begin in the household of God. Isn't that the message here? Dear church of Thyatira, dear church of Pergamum, 
Dear Church of Frankfurt, repent and watch what Christ will do. Let's go to Lord in prayer.